sponsored by Brilliant. I'm Rene Ritchie. Hit subscribe right now so you don't miss any of my WWDC 2020 deep dives, like this one on macOS Big Sur. macOS Big Sur runs on any 12-inch MacBook, the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro from 2013 or later, the Mac Mini and iMac from 2014 or later, the Mac Pro from 2013 and later, and the iMac Pro. One of the biggest advantages of the modern Mac is that it can better keep pace with new iPhone features and vice versa. More on that in a hot minute. But as a result, some of the new features in macOS Big Sur are similar or the same as ones in iOS 14, which I covered in a video earlier this week. Rather than double dip on you, I'll just point you to that video for more. That includes things like the new messages group features and the modern messages features in general, sent with lasers, finally, and things like cycling directions and maps. It's the way these features are implemented, though, that's worth a hell of a lot more discussion. So more on that in an even hotter minute and a later video. Big Sur also gets the same new cross-platform thanks to SwiftUI widgets based on the watch complications. They look terrific. The information density is generally great. The glanceability is aces, but they're also a huge step down when it comes to interactivity. In other words, if you liked having a calculator widget, well, goodbye, at least for now. The new widgets are display only with everything else handled by deep linking you right into the host app. Also, unlike iOS, where you can pin arbitrary widgets to the home screen, or iPadOS, where you can pin a sidebar filled with them to the home screen, in Big Sur, widgets are still constrained to Notification Center, so you still have to swipe them in and out, like you've had to do since the old dashboard days of yore, and yes, like an animal. Which is fine if your desktop is littered with app windows, but an extra step if it's otherwise clear. With macOS Big Sur, Apple is finally taking the Mac to 11 which is great because all the 10 dots were getting more than a little ridiculous. I do wish instead of incrementing the full version number, Apple had simply dropped it and incremented the point number and gone with macOS 16 because right now the much older macOS seems much younger than iOS 14, but I've been told it's incredibly rude to point out an operating system's age. So fine. Plus, Craig Federighi lays out all credit and blame on Apple's crack marketing team here anyway. That Apple finally decided to change the venerable macOS, nay OS X's version number, does show just how big a deal they believe Big Sur really is. Now, I've already done a whole video explaining the Mac's Intel to Apple Silicon transition. So seriously, just hit subscribe already. But there are a few really cool new macOS features that'll be coming as part of that transition. And I just have to go over those here namely the boot and startup experience. Because the Mac is moving to the same type of systems on a chip that the iPhone and iPad have been using for a decade, the Mac is also getting a very iPhone and iPad-like secure boot process. That basically means each stage of boot up is cryptographically verified along the chain, making it much, much harder for malware to get deep into the system. And yeah, the classic boot up chime is back, baby, it's back. For the Mac version, Apple has added the very Mac-like ability to boot from multiple macOS versions, either on internal or external drives. In other words, as new versions come out, you'll be able to continue booting into older versions if you want to. The startup experience itself has also been simplified. So if you want to boot into a different mode, instead of having to hold down a bunch of random keys, hoping beyond hope you got the right keys at just the right time, you now just hold down on the power touch ID button and you get an interface asking you which mode you want to boot into. And I love that. There's a new Mac sharing mode, which replaces target disk mode. It uses SMB to provide access to data between Macs with all the appropriate authentication, of course. 
you can also choose between full and reduced security modes. Full security mode, which is the default, is similar to the iPhone or iPad. Super safe, but super locked down. The main difference is you can still boot from those external volumes on the Mac, even in full security mode. For more mainstream customers coming to the Mac from the iPhone and iPad, and who want to run iPhone and iPad apps on the Mac, it's the best option. Reduced security mode, by contrast, is far more flexible and configurable, like the traditional Mac. You can run any old version of macOS you want, even those no longer signed by Apple. And you can install notarized third-party kernel extensions, if you're into that sort of thing. For pros and power users, hobbyists and researchers, and people who know how to change defaults, who want to run anything they want to run on their Mac, this is totally there for you. Unlike Intel Macs, Apple Silicon Macs let you choose security per macOS install as well. So you can have your lockdown volume for fun and eat your freedom volume cake too. There's secure hibernation as well. So if your battery runs low, you still get full at-rest protection, integrity, and anti-replay protection as well. Recovery is even super smarter. Unlike Intel Macs, which have internet recovery, Apple Silicon Macs get system recovery. Basically, a minimally separate macOS environment in a hidden container that lets you reinstall macOS, even macOS recovery, if and when you need to. And yeah, Apple Configurator 2 is also still supported. And I think this really highlights two very important things. One, Apple really believes using their own silicon will let them deliver a far better experience to Mac users, like this. And that applies to the growing number of mainstream Mac users, for sure, but also to the incredibly important and vocal traditional Mac users as well. Apple's continuing to name new macOS releases after California landmarks, this time the powerful mountains and beautiful coastline of Big Sur. That second part, the beauty, represents the redesign, which Apple is calling the biggest one since the launch of the original Aqua interface in the very first version of OS X. And I think that's fair. There have been some major design moments in between, of course, including taking the iOS names and looks back to the Mac with OS X Lion, and the post-iOS 7 flattening, translucency, and vibrancy of OS X Sierra. But this feels like less of a half-step and more of a fully committed leap. At first blush, it's more iOS-like than ever. In many ways, that's great. More and more macOS users have been haloed over from the iPhone and iPad, and for them, consistency is absolutely a user benefit. Also, with Mac on Apple Silicon's upcoming ability to run iPhone and iPad apps, those are just going to fit in with the overall look way better than they would have otherwise. In other ways, though, it does feel like a regression. For example, gone are the circles and angled rectangles and arbitrary shapes of classic macOS icons, and in their place, the superlipses of iPhone and iPad apps, albeit with varying degrees of embossed, drop shadow, and detail from the subtle, completely absurd. And... I kind of wish Apple had just let macOS keep its own identity here. WatchOS gets the circle. TVOS gets the widescreen rounded rec. Beyond even a single shape, I can't think of anything that better exemplifies the difference between macOS and every other Apple platform. It's raison de still etre than the spiritually consistent yet rich silhouette diversity of the classic icons. Also, you can't really have too much of a good super ellipse thing. Likewise, the higher levels of translucency on the menu bar can make it look bitsy and messy, but you can also hide it now, something you can't do with the status bar on iOS. In other ways, the Big Sur redesign is a huge improvement and expansion, not just the full height sidebars, but how toolbars stay out of your way, visually and physically, until you need them. How the unified symbol library, 
Apple's been developing allows icons and glyphs to stay compact, but still recognizable everywhere. The spacing and rounding of the interface elements feels more natural and more breathable. Notification Center is more functional, like iOS. And Control Center is finally, finally here from iOS, but with a very Mac-like ability to tear off individual controls and persist them in the menu bar. The design changes even made some of the more frustrating apps, like the early Catalyst apps and the iTunes-sundered media apps, less visually disjointed. What's been most fascinating, though, has been seeing the reactions to the redesign. It's been the most amazing Rorschach test. Those who want touchscreen Macs see it as more touch-friendly. Those who want Apple Glasses see it as more AR-friendly. Those who like the iPad see it as far more iPad-like. And those who want the classic Mac want all of it to stop. At its core, though, context-appropriate consistency is just a huge win for everybody. It does create confusion, even conspiracy, for people who hear Apple say year after year that they're not merging the iPad and the Mac iOS and macOS, yet see everything from the silicon to the operating system components to the interface elements coming together exactly that way. I think the critical difference is, though, that Apple doesn't see the Mac or the iPad as a collection of parts. They see them as holistic products, both incredibly successful products, businesses most other companies would trade their right C-level executive for. And beyond crunchy, chewy, emotional stuff, until one of those businesses starts to slide significantly, there's just no way Apple as a company is going to want to give up the profits from either of them. But, but they are going to want to make them more efficient and yes, more consistent for them to streamline development and for customers to streamline adoption. To completely abuse the old Steve Jobs analogy, a truck can have most of the same components and comforts of a car, should have in fact, but also still a flatbed and towing capacity. Some will end up being more like SUVs, some more like Optimus Prime, but they're all still trucks. And like the Schiller Doctrine says, the iPad team's job is to make the iPad so good, nobody needs a Mac. And the Mac team's job is to then make the Mac so much better still, it's clear why you'd want a Mac. Along those lines, Apple's now into the third year of Catalyst. That's the project name for bringing iOS-based UIKit apps to the Mac. The first year, the first beta apps, were kinda not very good, terrible. The second year, the first public apps got better. For all the grousing I'll do about the traditional app kit music apps, the Catalyst Apple podcast app was almost indistinguishable. That might sound like damning with faint praise, but it was a big step forward for Catalyst. Swift Playgrounds was an even bigger one, as opposed to the developer app, which was super nice to have, but also came off as super last minute. The third year, this year's apps though, are pretty damn good. So good, Apple's willing to bring the most important app on their platform fully into Catalyst, the Messages app. And let's be honest here, despite Apple merging their app teams a few years ago to try and promote better feature parity across platforms, Messages for Mac just never got that memo, or effects, or Memoji, or much of anything. As a Catalyst app though, it has pretty much everything, including this year features like pinning, mentioning, and inline replies. And Assuaging my own personal fears, it even maintained its exclusive Mac features, like screen sharing, which, yeah, I still want on iOS so very badly. Maps is now Catalyst as well, and getting caught up with features like favorites, indoor maps, ETA, and look around, and getting all the new stuff as well, same as the iOS versions, including guides, cycling directions, EV and congestion routing. But 
Most critically, there is absolutely no better way to make sure frameworks get attention and bug fixes than by Apple's biggest apps and engineers feeling that pain first. And wow, will porting over apps like Messages do that? I'll save my thoughts on what that means for the future of Mac frameworks and development for another video. But for now, I think we're seeing another part of a multi-year puzzle finally falling fully into place. I covered a bunch of the new Safari features in my iOS and iPadOS videos earlier in the week. And while I don't wanna be duplicative here, I also don't wanna take away from just how big an update it is and how important Safari is. And not just because of all the cool new customization features on the start page. The web is standardized, but also open, which means a lot of those standards are interpreted by the various browser companies. That also means each company interprets them in a way that best suits that company. For example, Apple has a huge native app platform, so they tend to let the web be the web. Other companies, not so much, so they push for the web to be and act far more natively. Because of Google's influence on the web, a lot of web developers now code for Chrome instead of for the open web, just like they used to code for Internet Explorer. It's totally understandable, but it's also detrimental, and I hope open web advocates inside Google and the developer community can understand and help avoid the long-term consequences of that trend. Apple, for their part, is continuing to make Safari a first-class, super-fast web experience. That includes web extensions, so developers can port over what they've already made for other browsers, but with typical Apple privacy protections, so you can choose to run it just once, just for a specific web page, or always. There's also support for WebP images, though not yet WebM video. There's translations, and if you look side by side with Chrome, in some cases Safari is doing an even better job parsing what exactly is a text field from out of the page. There's a new web authentication API and security code autofill. And there's privacy reports, which shows you all the trackers now being blocked. Which, yeah, has some people casting this feature as Apple versus the ad industry and worrying about what it means for the future of monetization on the web, including people who usually complain about web ads more than, I don't know, champion them? But anyway, I don't see it that way. For me, it's about disclosure and consent. I have no problem with advertising on the web. Worked for years in businesses that did just that. And I don't think Apple does either, because guess what? They advertise on the web. If it's a good business, though, with good business practices, I don't imagine anyone doing it will be angry or upset about what they're doing getting an Apple-sized spotlight. For us, for consumers, it'll make web advertising a better, more upfront, more honest business for everyone. And that would be a huge win for everyone. But I get that the industry is still going to want to do the math on that. Luckily, Brilliant's got a whole new math course library just for them and for us. It lets you brush up on fundamentals, probability, algebra, calculus, trigonometry, differential equations, and geometry, all the math for school, for work, for fun, for the ad industry. Brilliant is a problem-solving based website and app with a hands-on approach with over 60 interactive courses in math, in science, and in computer science. Courses that can help you achieve your goals in STEM, starting with one small commitment to learning and building up to long-term challenge and growth. Go to brilliant.org slash Rene Ritchie and sign up for free. And the first 200 of you can also level up with 20% off the annual premium subscription. Thanks, Brilliant. Thanks to all of you for your support. Check out the WWC playlist for more and see you next video.